Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Glory Glory My Night podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kyle Quinn. And joining me today is my old mate, Phil De Bruyne. How's it going, Phil? Oh, good, mate. How are you? Thanks for having me on, as always, Kyle. I'm brilliant. I'm looking forward to the football coming back again um, yep. after the really dull and tedious international break. Um, <laughs> now, there's a few topical things I want to get into. Um, and what we've been listening to in the last couple of days is reports about stadium expansion at Old Trafford, mm-hmm. which is quite frankly laughable because the other day, Simon Stone from the BBC was reporting that their United owe £969.9 million through a combination of gross debt bank borrowings mm-hmm. and outstanding transfer fees mm-hmm. uh, with associated payments, according to new figures. Now, I have no idea how Joel and Avram are going to afford um, these expansion plans. Um, the Sheikh Chazim, Jim Radcliffe stories have gone very quiet, and certainly in terms of solid news. Um, the general feeling is that uh, Joel and Avram want to remain, but their siblings want to sell their shares, so there's kind mm-hmm. of a an argument within the family there. Uh, it's it's a bit of a minefield at the moment. Don't don't really know what's going on and what's going to happen. So how do you see it, Phil? Well, siblings have wanted to sell for a long time. Um, that's been, you know, an issue for Joel and Avram for a long time. Uh, the issue for all six of them is the bylaws of the company and how it was set up. So none of them can sell their shares individually without the consent of all six. Um, if you look at what all six actually own, it is 69%, but Joel and Avram only own 33% of the 69%. That actually equates to less than a quarter of the actual equity of the football club is owned by them. So the other four want to take their money out. So even if someone comes in and buys out the other four, um, that money will not be put back into the club. So then you have the issue that would make Joel and Avram minority shareholders. Uh, he ever bought the other four siblings out who become the majority shareholder. Um, they own 25% of an insolvent business, essentially, despite the fact they made a profit of 6.2 million in the last quarter, which is the first profit they've turned um, in quite a while. But the annual losses equate to about 150 million. So United really only has value if it's sold. There's no value in investment in the business because in order for there to be value in investment of the business, that debt is going to have to be paid down. Um, the debt, why would someone come in and pay the Glazers debt off for them? Um, you know, if you look at United as an investment, you're going, well, if I buy it to four siblings, you know, which appraises totally different as a partial buyout versus a complete buyout. Um, you just bought shares in a club that isn't capable of paying dividends at the minute, a club that needs material investment in its infrastructure, a club that needs material investment in its playing squad, a club that needs um, to pay off a significant portion of its debt um, for it to function because it's being suffocated by it. So... If you're an investor, sorry to give you a long answer on this, there's other better investments in the financial world. Um, if you want to buy the club, well, it's a whole different prospect because it's yours. 
Um, you you know, you know, if you look at the bylaws of the company, the way it's set up, Joel and Avram have an agreement with the six, the, the four other siblings that they own they control ninety eight percent of the football decisions, but the business decisions are distributed equitably across each of the family where they have an equitable say. I had a doubt, even if someone was to buy those four siblings out, they would honor that agreement that, that Joel and Avram could still play football manager, given that they've run it so badly. You'd have to be utterly insane to do that. So it's hard to see where the equity is for the Glazers to do a partial sale, why that would be attractive to any potential investor. Um, the numbers that you would need to invest in United to make any material difference is circa $2 billion. The time you buy you know, stadium, finance that, all that. Um, you know, you can clear the debt and borrow, you know, to build a stadium, I suppose. Um, but you know, United appraised value from Bloomberg's what 1.8 billion. You know, it's only worth six billion because people want to buy the football club. You know, if you look at the appraised value of a of a house room by room, it's a lot less than the sale price. If I want to rent a room in a house, 200 square feet and a 1,000 square foot home, you know, it costs a lot less than what it would cost to buy it, obviously, because I'm still living under someone else's roofs and, you know, the price is totally different that way. You want to buy the house, there's a reason why that costs a lot more and, and that 200 square feet of price is completely different. So, um, I mean, I'm not no financial whiz, but... It's hard for me to see why United would be an attractive investment and then to convince the Glazers to dilute equity and reinvest that money. They don't really have equity dilute anyway. I don't know. So why are Joel and Avram making plans to revamp the stadium when they can't possibly borrow any more money? So how, yeah. how is that even possible? Well, I have no doubt that um, they will have looked at financing options uh, and made sure they mortgaged it in, in the same way that, you know, go to a developer and say, okay, let me, you, you have the title on the property until we pay it off and find other financing means of paying it off. We finance that and try to increase revenue in other ways. Um, but, you know, they balk at the price. There's a bit of a technical issue with Old Trafford in the sense that they're legally bound if they want to, they wanted to sell Old Trafford, for example, to finance it, to rebuild the new stadium. Uh, the, it's listed as a community-interested asset, which means they'd have to offer it to United fans or the, the, the uh, council first. Um, so they can't borrow against Old Trafford, you know, because that would mean the bank would be the title holder. So uh, maybe you borrow against the training ground. Maybe you could borrow against some of the land that they own. In the surrounding Old Trafford, but there's really very limited equity options for them to finance it. Um, you know, it, it, it's I don't know. I mean, I'm they've been trying to buy out the other four siblings through by private equity firm for a long, long time. I mean, six three were approached in 2020 to try to do this, and no one's shown any particular appetite given the current financial climate. Um, given the fact that. As we've seen with the accounts released recently, that the debt has increased partly just through currency uh, depreciation. Um, interest rates have gone up, currency depreciation. Um, it's hard to see 
you know, where the leverage is anymore. I mean, this was to me always going to be endpoint. Once you need it, where the leverage to the help, where they borrowed against every asset you know had available, where they taken out as much as they can, where you know reached the stressor point. I mean, remember, you know, couldn't spend a single penny in January because he'd reached this point. Um, this would be the point they'd sell. So, do you think that the the full seal will go through then before the end of the season? Because a lot of fans are skeptical mm. about it now. Well, um, you'll get a decision one way or another before the end of the season, you know, because there's a lot of things that are riding on this. I mean, players' futures are riding on this. United can't agree to sell anyone until they know what their summer budget's going to be. There's players want to leave. There's players want to be sold. Um, so, you know, these potential buyers are not going to keep money on the table forever. Um, they'll have a deadline themselves before they walk away. They're not going to be played forever. So, you know, this is not going to go on for, uh, you know, in, perpet in perpetuity, it's going to come to an end. So, you know, the fact that things have gone quiet is a welcome relief. I mean, truthfully, it has been quiet. Uh, the reality is, and no disrespect to Cavi and Sky and everything, they've dragged this out and turned every major permutation into a story. You know, could the Glazers do this? Could Manchester United? This is what their account. I mean, it's just there's no story. Right? There's no development. If the illusion of development by giving you an opinion, ifs, buts, maybes, right? I mean, the next thing that's worth reporting on with this bid is when something material changes. You know, has the bid been accepted? Has someone pulled out? You know, has the landscape changed? But this, you know, this is, of course, why it appears United are always in sagas, transfer sagas, because every minor detail is turned into a massive story where other clubs, you know, if you look at the Newcastle bid, well, it take nine months to go through. You know, you take a look at other bids, you know, it should be going on in quiet. I can honestly, man, I, I, I get fed up with it because... The amount of clearly that it can't all be right, right? Because everyone's briefing again. This this is a development. This is a development. This is happening. 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 And it just makes your head spin. And you're going, just disconnect from this, because this is just news media milking the story for as many clicks, likes, downloads, retweets. That's all it really is. There's nothing new here, right? And so, um, you know it. it it's really, you know, I'm quite certain that Sheikh Dasim and Jim Ratcliffe have been told to stay quiet, you know. So that's exactly how this should be happening. And I'm convinced that most people have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Um, if there's no Man United news, then simply just create some um, and then you'll have a story. I mean, we know that United is the, certainly the biggest story in, in England when it comes to football. Um, when you saturate the news with the United Stories, there's no responsibility to be correct. You're constantly updating them. So they're not second source and third source and stuff. I mean, perfect example was the bid deadline. You know, shake the same bids in and now later, actually it's not in. Actually it's getting an extension. And they're constantly updating them. You know, if there was a responsibility to be right, to be accurate, the first story wouldn't have got released, right? But because they're, you know, it doesn't matter if it's right or not, because 
goldfish memory on the end. And I had to, you know, oh, you know, I get my dopamine fall, move on to the next one. And, uh, you know, this is where I kind of, journalists don't like uh, people who aren't journalists calling themselves journalists, right? They're quite, I don't want to say pretentious, but it's people who do podcasts call themselves journalists. They like to push back on that and go, you're not a journalist, you're a commentator. They're quite happy to blur the lines themselves between what is a journalist and what is a commentator when it comes to reporting. And remember, they're not in the business of entertainment, they're in the business of informant. And so whenever you've got them having no journalistic merit in some of the stories, because they're not particularly well sourced, but they just throw them out there anyway, then they deserve to have those blurs, those lines blurred. There's people that don't do that, like the David Ornstein, what have you. You don't need to do that. David Ornstein is an exceptional journalist who survives on the quality of his journalism. He's reputable. He doesn't saturate with, you know, garbage content, you know, because he doesn't need to. You know, he maybe puts out one tweet a day, and that tweet is exceptionally informative. And that's, you know, his got 1.8 million followers or something. And then you've got others that just saturate Twitter and are entertainers. And so, but the problem with the entertainers is, they're not taken serious when they're breaking stories because yeah. that's not what you, you, you that's not why you listen to them. They're entertaining that informative. Yeah, they'd rather be first than be right. Um yes, and everybody everybody knows who they are and, and you rightfully pointed out that David Ornstein is uh, is very reliable. Uh, and today he broke the story of Luke Shaw's new contract. Yeah. It seems as if Tin Hogg is a big fan of the player and wants to keep him on for at least another four years. So are you happy with that decision then, Phil? Well, I think Luke Shaw is a very good left back. I think when you look at more, you know, his more immediate needs, they're they're not um not a left back at the moment. You know, I mean United, no matter who owns a football club, we're not going to spend three hundred million this summer, right? So they'll have to be measured. The vast majority of that money is going to go on a forward, right? And you know, to me. When Luke Shaw, when you want to fix something like Luke Shaw, you're talking about the rims. You're not talking about the engine, if you know what I mean. You know, before we get to the heart of fixing the major, you know, the major issues within the squad, Luke Shaw is a cosmetic fix to me because there's enough there. You're not going to cost you a lead title. He's maybe not the le- best left back in the world, but it's a very good left back. And I sort of put that with the hand in the same category. You know, it's not. It, 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 when you're talking about open heart surgery that, that um, Ranick was talking about, to me there's more obvious issues in the squad that need more immediate fixes this summer. And when you build on that and you get this jigsaw right piece by piece, then you can fix those parts. Um, you know, one of the things that Ten Hag's done last summer is he's plugged a lot of holes in the, in, the, in, in, in the day, we've made sure that now we have something to build on. We're not trying to buy another couple of centre-backs this summer to fix a problem we didn't fix last summer. We're not trying to buy another midfielder to fix what we didn't fix last summer. You know, if you look at his signings, you know, the centre-back now, sort of, right? Possible if one of the backup centre-backs leaves, you know, they might need to do something, but, you know, you could, you could do that. It's not where you need... You know, it's a crisis. You know, you absolutely must get a centre back. See him in midfield. You know, the, the Casemiro. They obviously need another centre Casemiro. Um, uh, they need another forward. Of course, that is something that's blatantly obvious. 
So to me, um, that's where the focus will be this summer. It'll be on a forward, possibly a right back, probably another midfielder. Yeah, we're looking at like three quality additions rather than wholesale changes to the squad. You know, that's the mm-hmm. what Ten Hag has managed to achieve in a short space of time. Was like it seemed it seemed to be since two thousand thirteen. Every most windows were discussing we need ten players, we need eight players. Now we're talking about three quality additions to uh, bring us into position to challenge for the title. So. Yeah, Luke Shaw, I think he's one of the best in the Premier League when it, going forward uh, as a fullback. Obviously, there's still issues with his defending to address, but overall, uh, very happy with his output this season. But, but, but uh, you just said, I mean, you tell me a player, you know, left back that doesn't have something they need to work on, right? I mean, let's look at Liverpool's left back. You know, Andy Johnson's a good left back. Trent Alexander's a good right back. Are they perfect? No. Take a look at uh, Arsenal and Zinchenko. Is he perfect? No. You know, take a look at City's left back. Perfect. Was Rico Henry now? You know, they were playing Bernardo Silva now. You know, uh, perfect. No. You know, so, um, you, you know, and this is the part of my issue with people that criticize De Gea. De Gea has a very obvious flaw, weakness in his game. He's not great playing out from the back. But most fans that watch De Gea aren't watching other keepers with the same scrutiny, right? Because, I mean, it's just not possible to watch every single game. So you're watching highlights. And I, I, I look at the, the goalkeepers that are being suggested to replace De Gea. And they may well be better keepers. But they aren't perfect either, right? I mean, Jojo Costa is not perfect. Didn't have a great, a perfect World Cup. David Raya, you know, plays plays out from the back, gives the ball away. Allison plays out from the back, gives the ball away. You know, numerous times he's called the best goalkeeper in the Premier League. The problem is playing out from the back is overly fetishized, and when you play from the back, it's a very high risk strategy, even when it gets to centre backs, right? Because that ball into your centre midfielder is almost always a blind ball. They can't see what's behind them. And getting out past the second line is really hard, especially when Premier League teams know how to press you. So, yes, it's important that goalkeepers can use their feet, right? But goalkeepers raising on that was to get the ball out of the net. That's the most important thing. I mean, Veghorst, I don't care what anyone says, strikers are judged on the goals they score. That's the primary function. Yes, it's great that they can do other things. But a striker can play shit and score a goal and come off the field with his confidence through the roof. Or a striker can play great and not score and his confidence fall to the floor because they judge themselves on goals. Goalkeepers judge themselves on clean sheets. It's important that they're adaptable, that they have other skills. I watch Mamma Noya. I watch other top goalkeepers, Jan Black, everything else. They all make mistakes playing out from the back. It's hard. Well, so don't disagree with you, Phil. I didn't ask a question about that again. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, I mean, it, it, it's the same, you know, when we're evaluating players, you know, where somebody replaces him, we replace him, we'll replace him with who? You know, yeah. because the problem is, yeah, they're not you might perfect. Get, you might get a keeper who's better with his feet, but there's nobody out there who's better at shot stopping than David again. You will you will come down in quality no matter who you buy it, in my opinion. Um, well, so. 
yeah, I mean, it's possible if you have a, you know, you need to get, once you get to a point where they need to make minor changes to the team, maybe one or two signings in the summer, then you need to have a squad that's capable of competing for the title, right? Now, if you need to have Holland up front, there's the three games that have lost this season, three games that have lost this season, they lost convincingly, they lost the City, lost to Brantford, and they lost to Liverpool. Wouldn't have mattered whether they had a Holland in those games, right? But the games that they drew in Newcastle home, those two, the, the Leeds game at home, the Southampton game, you needed to sit with Holland in those games. You needed to run Arsenal's coattails, right? So, yeah, if when they get these key areas addressed, and Ten Hag shouldn't be judged on whether he has a winning take winning team yet or not, then. You know, we need to be in the discussion. You know, look at Guardiola's first season, look at Klopp's first season. It takes time to get those players in place. So, um, you know, Ten Hag gets a, a striker this summer, and I don't think it'll be Harry Kane gets the striker that he wants, then um, that stays fit every week, um, that gives an alternative to Rashford, then you need to be in the in shirt. Okay, so another thing I wanted to talk about was the form of Scott McTominay during the international break. He got four yep. goals in two games, two yep. against Spain, mm-hmm. um, which has led to a lot of clamour from fans online for McTominay to play at number nine for Manchester mm-hmm. United. It's some people might find ridiculous. Um, I know he has played there um, in his youth days, um, but Tin Hag seemed to play that notion down in his press conference uh, earlier today. Um, now, given... Yeah, Ten Hag is very loyal to Vikers, despite him only scoring two goals so far since arriving in January. Um, so you can, can see him continuing at St James's Park on Sunday. But I wouldn't be surprised and maybe, you know, with 20 minutes to go in a game, um, he might use McTominay in that position. Um, he certainly seems to be... McTominay is going to sometimes be really out of form and then he has bursts of good form where he scores goals. So... We, I would really love to utilise that at the moment, considering Casemiro is missing. So definitely McTominay will start uh, at St James's Park, um, probably in midfield, small I'm chance sure up front. Start. Uh, I think... He might, but, but... I think so. But, mate, to be fair, Ten Hag has used him as a number nine at times this season, you know, because of his height. I've seen him bring Baycourse on to McTominay up, up front. So yeah. it's not... Um, you know, because I think that's partly why you know Ten Hag likes a big, tall, target man up front, right? That he always has. So you know, he's like that at Ajax or Haller. You know, um, there's a reason why I wanted an Erdovich and they like Sesko. There's a reason why I want for Veghorst, not just because he's Dutch, right? And so he, he likes to play through a big target man, and that's partly what saved McTominay is he is unique height also offers United a lot of set pieces defensively, offensively. Um, which you know, when if you see United holding on to a game, you know, trying to close out a game, McTominay gets thrown on a lot because he starts throwing set pieces in the box and he's used to defend them. Um, so he certainly has use as a squad player, but one of the things in that Southampton game. He was the first player subbed in that Southampton game. Um, because, and I watched him quite a bit in that game. And it's not, I mean, it's not his fault because he's just not that player. Um, McTominay does not know how to link to, from defence to midfield. I mean, if you take a look at the angles that he's taken up in midfield, 
a lot of times he's taking up angles when the defense are coming out with a ball. He's standing directly behind. Well, he was doing this a lot against Southampton, directly behind the Southampton player, where he has no passing angle to receive the ball. He's not occupying spaces to build out from the back and connect. If you remember that Brentford game before United had Casemiro, they dropped Ericsson back in there. They do that job, right? So when I look at McTominay and going, where does he fit? Because Sabitzer had a good international period too. Sabitzer scored, you know, uh, uh, his first United goal in the FA Cup. Went through them. And I think uh, Sabitzer, Fred and Bruno is probably his strongest three um, in midfield. So... Depends, you know, obviously it'll help with Sancho and um, Rashford will have had rests. You know, Anthony's fit. Uh, Martial probably come off the bench. He's fit, um, which is great. So it's not certain what that midfield three will be. And uh, I think if you look at the Carabao Cup, you know, Newcastle are not bad in the centre. You know, I expect him to start Juan Bissaka because he'd be worried about that maximum. Um, maximum. Uh, and Juan Bissaka did a good job on him. Um, Bruno Gimaraes in midfield is a really, really good player. And uh, and, and Miguel Almiron is a really good player. Um, everything goes through them. So one of Fred's strengths, I think, that it's underrated is he's a, he really does well tracking runs from midfield. He doesn't switch off, right? Um you know, just just maybe that he will start McTominay if he thinks a bit or Fred and, and Bruno is a bit too attack minded. Um, but uh, yeah. McTominay's not a bad player. Yeah, I think the Fred Sabitzer Bruno midfield three, you can argue that it lacks balance. Um, I think Fred and Sabitzer played in those lead games. It didn't really go to plan, especially in the Old Trafford game. Um. So in more recent times when Casemiro's not been available, we've seen McTominay come in. We've seen McTominay start at the Emirates when when Casemiro wasn't available. He started against Fulham um, when uh, Casemiro wasn't available. So Casemiro's a bit, sir, probably offers more balance on it um, in Ten Hag's mind as well. So I don't see... He might, he might go for Fred and Sabitzer, but oh, I think I... it's more likely McTominay and Sabitzer if Sabitzer's available. Um, I think if you look at that Carabao Cup game, and it could possibly have been down to fatigue um, because you never played in Europa League right before it on Thursday. But if you look at the possession stats in that game, Newcastle dominated possession. I think it's 63 or 64% 66 or something. So you never played a counter-attacking game against them. And you had to have to say it worked perfectly. I mean, I don't remember Newcastle having too many clear-cut chances, maybe one. Comes at maximum that they have saved. Um, they didn't really pose much of a threat. There'll be a bigger threat tomorrow because or Sunday because they're at home, and obviously Isak is 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 back for them and, and playing quite well. It's a massive game for both these teams. Um, United can't lose it. I think if United took a draw in the game, it would be a decent result. To be honest, um, it's a bit concerning that they haven't won a league game since Carabao Cup and haven't scored a goal. In the league since the Carabao Cup, um, you know they lost seven over Liverpool and then drew nil to Southampton. Um, so the break sort of came at the right time. Obviously they had the Fulham result in between, which was good. Um, but uh, 
the United can't really afford to drop a lot more points because, you know, Spurs, well, uh, the, the situation at Spurs will reinvigorate the likes of Liverpool and believe that top four spot is wide open. Um, United aren't a million miles away from dropping out of the top four. And, you know, there are, there, if you look at where United have had problems this season, it's their away form the teams in the top four, right? I mean, you know, the the away form, the Liverpool, the way to City, you know, they've got Ar- better. Arsenal. Arsenal, you know. Um, so this is a game that United can't afford to lose. Casemiro is such a massive loss because United are a different team without him. And Ericsson, you know, hopefully he'll be back soon. So it's just, it's a bit concerning that. Yeah, we definitely need Varane to be fit and available for this one. Um, the midfield is obviously going to be a lot weaker without Casemiro, so I want to have the security of Varane in there. I don't want Harry Maguire playing in this game, um, with you know, with the midfield of either like Tommy or Fred in front of him. You know, it doesn't fill me full. Of, uh, doesn't give me hope when we're playing at St James's with 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 that sort of team. You know, we're a much better team when we have Varane and Casemiro in our spine. Of course. Um. So the 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 lineup that I would like to see is probably the Gay, Juan Bissaka, Varane, Martinez, Shaw, McTominay, Sabitzer, Bruno, Rashford, Veghorst, and Anthony, I think, on the on the right hand side. Um that would that would be the team that I would go for and I would expect Tin Hag will probably select something similar. Um yeah, so Rashford is going to be fit and available for this game as well, which is obviously absolutely crucial with his 27 goals this season. Um, I just want to bring up something that doesn't get talked about um, that much, and that's the fact that Ericsson, we know, is a very good free-kick taker um, when he was from his time at Spurs. Sabitzer, we've just seen him rattle in a free-kick mm-hmm. for Austria, and he's done this for his, for his clubs. Does it frustrate you that Bruno takes all the free kicks. Before that, Ronaldo took a lot of them as well. Were the fans of wanting to see Ericsson and Nice Bitzer take more set pieces and they don't really get the chance? Bruno's a captain, he dictates the tune. And his the quality of his free kicks in recent seasons have just been n- not good enough. Would you like to see Ericsson or Sabitzer taking more free kicks from outside the box? Um, yes and no. I think like, you know, Ten Hag is the one that makes that decision. And I think um what I would like to see more of when United are taking free kicks on the right hand side, they have end swingers because if you've seen Casemiro, they've they've scored quite a few goals from those end swingers, right? Where you know they find you know Casemiro's brilliant. I mean, I scored it on field, you know, before it was disallowed. Scored the Carabao Cup, you know, scored you know at Old Trafford and it was the FA Cup. Um, Eight two against Reading, yeah, yeah. So he's very very good at that. Um, all depends on where United are taking them. I mean, one thing United have definitely improved on quite a bit this season, care of set pieces, not just how they attack and set pieces, but how they defend them. I mean, last season was a total joke. You know, so Eric Ramsey's done a good job. Uh, and that's worth mentioning. It's worth mentioning Luke Shaw's delivery has been excellent as well. Yes, yes, yes. Luke Shaw has uh, done exceptional. You know, a number of Rashford goals has come from Luke Shaw doing that. Um, and, I, and he's done really well to get, um, you know, they get goals or assists from, from that position. You know, will have to do something about that on the right-hand side, obviously, eventually. Um, but um, I can't say that, 
you know, obviously Ericsson has talent for that, but Ericsson hasn't played in four months, you know, uh, three, four months. Um, you know, Sabitzer, I mean, I, I saw a clip of Victor Lindelof hitting a 30-yard free kick for Benfica in the top corner. Most professional footballers can hit a free kick, you know, a dead ball and hit it accurately. Um, you know, so I can't say that I'm massively disappointed. I don't know, but it, it, it's, you know, there's a number of capable players that, that, that could do it, yeah. When's the last time we scored direct from a free kick? I really, I mean, can you think of when that was? It must be a few seasons ago now. Um, it, I, I can't think off the top of my head. No, I don't think it was that long. I think uh, I think you've done it a couple of times a season. From I mean, straight in the back of that. Um, I have to think about it. I, I, I haven't got the best memories of all the drugs I've taken. <laughs> <laughs> I know Bruno has done it a few times in the past. It must be at least a couple of seasons ago since he'd done it now. Um, mm. I just don't feel as if Ericsson before he got injured he didn't get the take enough one or two um, and then I want to see the bits or now. Well, I remember you know, Ericsson taking a few um, did I see him take one away at Fulham um, right before the international break I remember him taking a couple but uh, and I don't I remember him being that great but you know probably not fair to judge him you know it's not an easy skill you know there's only one James Ward Prowse to be honest Prowse to be honest yeah, well, what usually happens is Erickson gets a chance um, and then it doesn't go in and it's, it's the, it goes straight back to Bruno again. And he's, we just know at this point that he's not going to score. Hopefully now that I've said that, Bruno will score at St. James's Park with the free kick. And that's usually the way things work out. But I have to admit, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see more drop points here, and especially with you know Casemiro missing. Um, again, well, it's going to come out fast in the atmosphere. We know what you're going to get at St. James's, you know, that they want revenge for Caraba, you know, that it's going to be intense, that the atmosphere will be raucous. You know, they're going to have to deal with that, they're going to deal with the bad thing they did at Anfield. They can't get playing emotional game. I thought they did away well with that at the way it leads, where leads were flying the tackles and it was intense, and you know, didn't get drawn into that game because you, you, you know. Uh, the oldest trick in the book when you're not a great football team is to get the team to lower yourself to your level, make it messy, flying the tackles. You know, every time you need to commit a foul, there's going to be screams from the the the, the crowd to give decisions. The referees going to have to be strong. So you know, I think um, the the always in these games the first twenty minutes is key because if they score and they get momentum, you know, uh, it it makes it a very very difficult game. Yeah, is it? Is it? I can see it. Uh, hopefully, United can, can get a win here. Uh, we one nil or two on, um, but I wouldn't surprise if it, wouldn't be surprised if it's a draw or even a defeat. No, just I hope, I hope Bray doesn't end up in a defeat. As you, like you say, they're going to be hungry for revenge for what happened in the final, and they're at home here. They're a much better team at home, and we can struggle away from home, like you mentioned already, especially against the top teams. So, I just I'll t- I'll take a draw probably, but I really want to win considering. We haven't actually. I, mean, I, I have it. to say, Kyle, I thought you needed to handle them quite comfortably at at um at, at Wembley, and they should have beat them at Old Trafford. I mean, Rashford missed an unbelievable yeah. chance in the last second. Um, but obviously, it's a different game at St James's, and you know, it's good that some of the United players went over arms retirement international football. Some of these players have had much needed rests. Um, Rashford and Fred. And, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I think that that, that it caught and came at a better time. Yeah, it's just just finally, is it a slight concern of you how how much uh, and it's 
it's been largely down to VAR. How much games Casemiro is missing through suspension? Um, I've never known. You'd have to go back to the days of Roy Keane for a player to be missing that many games, um, due to red cards. And if it wasn't a VAR, yeah. none of it would 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 have happened. Is it is it a slight frustration of yours? It's only frustration, you know, because he's a massive loss. Um, I think you can make an argument for both of them to be red cards or not. Um, you know, what makes it obviously the second red card a bit difficult to stomach is the fact that, you know, Paul Marner let the Ricardo Pereira on go the day before, and I almost feel that he was self-correcting. Because he let the, the, the Ricardo Pereira one go the day before uh, and didn't want to make the same mistake twice. So, you know, Casemiro somewhat paid for that. Um, but then United got lucky with Sabitzer against Leicester. You know, he could have very easily been sent off for that. Um, you know, so, but again, Crystal Palace won. You know, I look at the Crystal Palace home game. You know, I think it was Matata elbows Lissandro Martinez in the face. Scott McTominay should have had a penalty in that game. Um, some of the handball decisions that have gone against United have been truly baffling. The Real Battis one, the Real Sociedad one, you know, Southampton, uh, the Southampton one, which was, you know, I I don't care how long I've been watching football coherently. Well, maybe that's a bit of exaggeration, but I've been watching football for about forty years, and that's a handball for the last forty years. I mean, there's just no other, but no other decision when you look at what Liverpool got at Bournemouth the day before. You know, this is what's so infuriating. Just to finish up, I was watching the Bayer Leverkusen game. Referee gives a player two yellow cards, books him for diving. Each time reversed the season, reversed the yellow cards and gave penalties after VAR corrected him. I don't think you'd see that in England because we turn referees into celebrities and it's hard for them to swallow their pride. Okay, Phil, it's been a pleasure having you back on the show again. My pleasure, Ned. Uh, Thank you very much. And hopefully you now you get a positive result result at the uh, weekend and I will hope. see you again soon take it easy Paul all the best okay, see you later Matt bye alright see you later